Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Hey everyone, this is your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Thanks for listening to another episode of Everything to Everything Imaginable. And today we have the return of Mike and Mike, also known as West Coast Mike and East Coast Mike, or Mike Merle and Mike, what's the other Mike's name? Wilson. Wilson. Wilson, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming back on today. Thank you for having us, Gary. This is a lot of fun. It's good to be back, bud. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I, I wanted to ask, you know, we, we, we covered a lot of the the academic side of, uh, you know, the stuff, that, the, the PEMB side of it. Um, but I wanted to kind of dig into some of the other parts of it. Like one... Um, like I know, like when I asked you guys about how you came up with this, you guys like were like, okay, we sort of saw a hole that needed to be filled, and this is what we did. But when you, what was the research in this development? Like, like what? How did you start gathering the information and the ideas to fill that void? Well, you know what's really funny about about some of. The, the mindset of of uh, how research and things come together, we get so hung up on the empirical uh, things of life, and 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 yet, what someone started someplace because they came up with an idea, they saw something, they realized there was something missing, and. They then went searching, trying to figure out what is it that is missing in this particular environment or this particular relationship or this particular issue. And so when you say research, uh, our research has been life practice. Both of us are educators. Both of us are college and, you know, have beyond that kind of thing. Uh, so academics is not something that we don't do or you know, we just kind of rolled off the pumpkin cart and said, hey, this looks really great. Um, what we have done is we have spent a lifetime working with people. Um, my world and my professional take on the world has always been from a sociological standpoint. Um, I, I, That's my degree, that's my really my passion in many ways. So watching, observing, trying to figure things out and how relationally people uh, connect, don't connect. What is it that is missing? You know, Michael's side of life, he, he tends to be a little bit more clinical in how he pursues things uh, in his thinking, but he also is, a, is an observer of people. Um, so when you say research, uh, I mean, from the standpoint of academic, because we never, we never have said or will even begin to say this is an academic piece. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is this is a practical life skill development that we have learned the combination of, you know, professionally 
Mike and I, what, 40 some years in, in professional work. I mean, combination of getting close to, you know, over 80 years combined together of, of uh, professional working with people. That's been our world. And these are things that we have, uh, we have seen, we've understood and have brought together now to say, okay, let's see if we can help people really facilitate this by giving some real language to it, by making it something that they can grab a hold of, something that makes sense. And so that's how we came down with why do people act that way? And then the two large questions we always use are, um, you know, what's it doing to me and what am I going to do about it? Uh, in gripping your reality and that whole reality in the, in the middle. So that's, that's kind of an interesting, you know, it's an interesting question to start with, Gary, but it's, I, I, I think sometimes when we say research, people think, well, it's not legitimate because you don't have all, you know, 375 references. It hasn't been through a review. It hasn't done yet, 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 I've gone, we see, and it works. So, Mike, I, I mean, is that pretty close? Or are you, you going to go off the, off the, into the Netherlands with this thing at that point? Well, <clears throat> since we're friends and we're colleagues, I have to say that is spot on. You are exactly right. However, let me improve slightly on what you've said. <laughs> you could My, not go. You just could not. Could you? Stop. You were just twitching. Stop. No, I, I was to, actually, I was twitching over here. The, there are two kinds of research. We are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic and the companies that have been working on a vaccine have used a scientific research approach. That's valid. I understand that's valid. What they do in a laboratory is they test out a theory by practicing a solution over and over and over. And then they have other researchers repeat that exact experiment in their laboratory and the outcome is supposed to be identical. That's scientific research. When I chose to work with people, one of the reasons why I got out of the math science realm, which I was good, I was good in doing that stuff, was in working with people, you can never find the right answer. And you can't put a person into a laboratory and have them experience life repeatedly so you can test the theory out. And then I move that person over to Mike's lab on the West Coast and have him test the very same processes on the same person to find out are our theories accurate. For example, um, we have a 11 year old boy who has had his bicycle stolen and that boy bursts into tears and his father says, boys don't cry. And so they come to me and say, stop my 11 year old boy from crying. So we repeat with as many 11 year old boys as we can find stealing their bicycles having them cry and then having their fathers say, it's all right, you can cry. And other fathers say, stop crying, you're a boy. And then we test that theory out. Then we send over to Mike's lab 
a whole bunch of 11 year old boys and we have them steal their bicycles and we have to come up with the same result every time. You actually can't do that. So in my field, which is pastoral ministry and counseling, the kind of research we do is not scientific research, it's action research. That's the title that is given for what I do. It's once in a human experience um, event that cannot be repeated except with a variety of factors. So I watched my mother die. That created a huge issue for me in my life. Of course, my mother's death for her was a climactic event in the end of her journey. But for me as a 15-year-old boy, observing the death of my own mother was a non-repeatable event, even though other 15-year-old boys have had their mothers pass away. Mike's wife passed away from a similar kind of cancer as my mother, but his experience is unique. It can't, it's not laboratory identical. So what worked in my life may or may not work in his life. What we discovered is by listening, walking alongside countless numbers of people who were five years old or 15 years old or 50 years old or 70 years old, uh, men and women, people in all stages of life, events occur, sometimes by plan and sometimes by surprise. And then people observe it and they struggle with it. And they have some resources to deal with it, but they're lacking some resources. They don't know what to do. Mike and I, as, as good friends, as colleagues, as uh, people engaged in similar ministries, and then sometimes in very different ministries, brought our collective experience of people and began thinking through, talking through, imagining through how does this fit consistently? How do we talk about this when people don't have the language to do so? And that's how we came up with PEMB, the perceptions, feeding into emotions, feeding into motivations, feeding into behaviors, and then that becomes interactive. So as we tested that theory out in action research, we talked to the next girl that had uh, her dog killed out in front of her house, in front of her. Not an 11-year-old boy that had his bicycle stolen, but very emotional. And so we began to experiment, if you will, with the theory of language and ideas and skills and experiences. And we found that many people gained a real authentic resolution to complex matters in their lives uh, by the principles that we began to teach. That, that's how we came up with this. So, so it's exactly mm -hmm. what Mike said, but different. Interesting. Um, so, so kind of what you're... So, so if, uh, let's say, situations are unpredictable, people are unpredictable, people's perception of situations are unpredictable, how do you test it? Well, it's it, to say they're unpredictable is not, I don't think of it that way. <clears throat> it would be, I can predict 
five different ways that a person might respond to a particular situation that falls into my five emotional categories. So as I listen to them, I don't control their behavior by predicting it. To me, I anticipate, maybe that's a better word. Mm -hmm. I anticipate what kinds of responses a person might be feeling, then I know creatively how to listen for their language where they're struggling. Is this something they accept, but they're struggling with accepting it? Is it something they're afraid of and they're struggling with that fear? Is this something they're angry about and they really want to change the outcome, but they don't know how to bring about change? Is this something that exhausts them They're just depleted right down to the bottom of their core, and they don't know how to recover. Is this something that they're actually quite thrilled about, they're happy about, but they don't want to say so because other people will push back against that? So I have then five general ways of listening to how a person's experiencing their exact response is not predictable in a way that I'm controlling it but I'm one or two steps ahead of where they might be. So when they say I'm really struggling with being angry that my dog died, my bike was stolen, my mother died, my father was critical of me, whatever happens to be. And I can say, okay, let's, let's talk about that anger or I'm really hurt and I don't know how to stop the bleeding in my own heart. Okay. Well, let me talk. I'm two steps ahead of that. So it really became valuable for me as a counselor that I'm not actually caught by surprise by anything anyone says because I've anticipated, I have a framework that allows me to anticipate a wide variety of human experience, of responses to their experiences and be one or two steps ahead without controlling it. Right. So, so, like, like, say, for example, I come into your office and I say, uh, my dog died. And you're like, well, how do you feel about that? And I'm like, ah, it was pretty cool. Like something like completely okay. like off the wall like that. Like, like what sure. would you do with a person? Well, like let's that? say you didn't come into my office. Let's just say we're both shopping at the store, picking mm-hmm. up bread and milk and eggs. And we turn the cart and you say, oh, hi, Mike. How are you doing? Good. How are you today? My dog died. And I would, the normal response is, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. But my response would be, that is, that's an interesting thing to tell me. Um, Tell me some more. And then you say, my dog had terrible cancer. I went to the vet and it was $180 to take care of uh, putting my dog down. I just absolutely didn't have that, but my dog was suffering. And she ran out in front of a car and got killed, and it was instantaneous. I really feel very, very good about it. Well, if I hadn't thought that's a possibility, I may look shocked and say, you heartless idiot. How could you send your dog out to die by a car? I mean, Mm -hmm. the whole conversation now swerves off the side of the road, literally, and and (laughs) we get into a real difficult moment as opposed to my saying to you, I hear that, that, that is really, so you're feeling positive about your dog's passing. Um, Tell me some more about that. So you may, I'll, I'll let you lead and you say, that's it. 
you know, I scooped her up and put her in a bag and put her in a garbage can. Or I had a funeral, we lit candles, and uh, I know where her body uh, I'm good with that. Okay. I'm not going to say you can't do that or why did you do that. You'll be able to, t- to tell your story. And at some point, you may come back, and the next time we see each other in the store, six months from now, you say, you know, I've had this recurring dream where I sent my dog out to get killed. It's like it's my fault. Well, that's interesting. Tell me about that. So then you begin to describe guilt feelings as opposed to you were happy at the beginning, but now you're struggling with a sense of I don't feel safe anymore. So I know how to talk about that. Mm-hmm. I think what what a lot of this, you know, when you use when you say, you know, you were saying predictable uh, earlier in this conversation, I think it, it harkens back to what we're talking about here is that if you come into conversations with uh a a perceived uh notion of this is how it is supposed to play out so this this is a really good example you know of of uh you're in the store and you say my dog died well most people would have this perception well then at this point i need to you know i need to feel bad i need to you know and i'm using the word need uh that you know that I'm perceiving that that's my perception of how I'm going to respond if that happened to me and my dog. And they have no idea of understanding of <laughs> uh, the fact that this was a good thing and you're, you're really good with it. You're okay with it. And so there really is that you say, so how do, how do you, you know, how do you do this? Well, there's so much that comes into just the approach of understanding at the outset if you carry in your preconceived notions of how other people should be responding to emotional situations you have a very difficult time hearing really what's going on and being able to give them some other kind of way to work through whatever it is that they're dealing with emotionally so that's a huge piece of what we do when Mike says we're two steps ahead or three steps ahead. That has to do with, with walking in with a clean slate that is always about helping me understand what's going on so that I under, so I know that what I'm looking at is a very uh, true thing. It's not my perceptions being projected upon you of how you should feel or what you should be doing but it's me understanding you in your story so that I can help you figure out, okay, you know, what's going on here that we can connect for you in an emotional sense, but then back to the PEMB, what is driving all of those, what's driving what's going on in your head and your thinking, you know, in your emotions right now. Mm -hmm. And then it comes back to, I mean, I, we, we say this all the time, but we're going to go back. What's it doing to you? And what are you going to do about it? Because then we ask those questions and we're able to help people start, you know, working that through in a very clean slate way, because we're not projecting our own thoughts, feelings, perceptions, dynamics, culture, whatever you want to say onto the situation. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. We, we, call that, we call that having an agenda. 
And one right. of the things interesting is if we were back to the store and we're pushing our shopping carts, and I realize this is quite hypothetical because two men doing the shopping for their family is unlikely, but let's just say hey, that I happened. Did, I did that every day. Come on. I, I did that all the time. I still do it. Come on. Okay. That's a good thing. Anyway, so so you meet Mike <laughs> in the store because he's actually doing the shopping. And, That's right. And for you to say, uh, I, how are you doing today? Fine. My dog died. You do not you have not opened the door for us to launch our agenda onto you. Mm -hmm. You right. may just be saying, you know, say I'm sorry or, oh, that's too bad. And then you're going off to the egg section and you don't want me to psychoanalyze that and figure out how to help you through your grief. Right. The reality is that if I suspend my agenda for any other person until they invite me to come alongside that solves a lot of problems. Right. The, the, uh, the challenges that people have is I'm so, I find that so many counselors, ministers, teachers, politicians, it's across the board, parents, mm -hmm. everybody, they, they have an agenda already set in their mind. They're, they're three steps ahead or four steps ahead. So as soon as you say a trigger word, I'm launched into mm -hmm. stage two way out ahead of you. Ah, oh, my dog died when I was 13 years old and boy, I struggled with that for years and I made a little shrine and I put up a headstone and, and you're saying, um, no, my, that's not me. Let me tell you my story. Oh, let me, let me finish my story. So you have people that I've got an agenda and your words are simply triggers to launch my story. What we have learned how to do as counselors is you tell me your dog died. I'll say that's interesting. Um, uh, tell me more. And you go, nah, not much more to it. Okay. We don't have an agenda. There's no conversation. It's a, yeah. That was interesting. So I try to suspend my agenda in terms of walking alongside somebody until they say, I'm struggling with this. This is, this is something I haven't figured out yet. Can you help me do that? And I'll gain permission, and then we can work on that. And it can be – you can come in my office and schedule an appointment, but 99% of what we do is, is random, spontaneous, serendipity stuff. You see somebody, you're out for dinner together, you're playing cards, you're mowing the lawn, you're walking in, your, in the community, and somebody says, let me tell you what's going on for me, and they tell you the story. Right. That's – that's the way most of it happened. That's where that's really where I developed these theories was not in clinical counseling sessions where somebody said, schedule me for 90 minutes and then, you know, tell me the answer. Mm -hmm. um, it was at a camp or when we're fishing or riding right. bikes or having ice cream at a local at a local dessert place. And then people start talking about what's going on in their journey. Right. And when it became really difficult. Uh, or impacted or twisted or tangled in knots, they didn't know how to solve that. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's what we learned how to help with. And we, we approach this, I mean, I think one of the things that, that, that it's a mindset that's very different is that we, we come into these conversations with, without the agenda, but, but the, the agenda is for us, we're not here to fix you. 
In other words, you know, what Mike's saying, you know, well, hear about my story. When I had, you know, what out of blah, 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 blah. It's like, wait a minute. First off, you're going to val- you validate the person by allowing them to have their story and you don't superimpose anything over that. But we enter into this with the fact that we're not here to fix you. What we want to help do is if there is an issue here that you're trying to connect in your life, you don't understand why you're feeling what you're feeling. It doesn't make sense to you. You don't understand how you ended up in this outcome in your actions. We're sitting here saying, okay, let's talk about that. Let's, let's think that through. Let's, Let's have some conversation, but it's focused on the person, not the fact that we come to you saying, we've got the answers, we're going to fix you. And so that's why we, we just ban those words uh, in, in our vocabulary of need, should, ought, and must, mm-hmm. because when you start using those words, you are automatically moving to an agenda that now they become power-based that says, this is what you do. If you just get your life together and do this, it will be great. And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? That's not how life works. Right. Because so, you may be happy about your dog dying. I have but, a, or I have, you may be really sad. Yeah. So if, there, if you're coming into this with, with no agenda and the, the point is not to fix somebody, then what is the point? Uh, I'm not saying I don't have an agenda. <laughs> what I'm saying is I suspend my my agenda. Uh-huh. So so to, for me, let, let's just say on a on an impacted emotion, somebody is struggling with anger they can't resolve. They're angry all the time, or it bursts. It comes out inappropriate, and then in conversation be, between family members who are talking to me and or the individual talking to me, they will then identify, I have this level of anger. I don't know where it comes from and I don't know what to do with it. And so in response, my ears prick up at that. And I think I, I know how to talk about that. So I'll ask some leading questions. I have an agenda, but I've suspended it until the individual says, can you walk alongside me they may not use those words, but can you walk alongside me and and show me? They'll even say, can you fix me? And my response is, no, I can't fix you, but I can give you tools and right. knowledge right. that you'll be able to address this. You'll be able right. to fix yourself. And, 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 and so that- my agenda, I suspend, as opposed to the, the agenda is you tell me your story and I'm going to beat your story down with my story. You had a flat tire on a way to an important meeting. I had a wheel fall off my car. You had a deer jump out in front of you. I had a moose jump out in front of me. I mean, the reality is people, people have this, I've got to have a better story, a bigger story. I want to tell my story. And I'm not saying have, don't have an agenda. What I'm saying is know what your agenda is and suspend it. That's a little different. And I, and I would say on top of that, because I'm going to jet here and just uh, after I get done saying this, is that you say, well, why, what, why bother? Why do this? Well, because from the standpoint, it's, again, giving people, uh, giving them hope that there is a way for them to be able to manage life emotionally. There's a way for them to come to understand what reality is in their life. 
there's a way we can give you tools, we can give you words that will help you be able to connect in a way to move past your frustration, move past your inability to be able to deal with a particular thing that's going on. And so when you say, well, if there's, you're not trying to fix them and there's no agenda, I'm going, no, that is an attitude that we come to you with that says, we're here to bring hope to you because we, we know from experience personally, as well as working with so many people that, that there is a huge lack of just common tools for people to be able to work with in their lives to deal with emotional issues. And they have been frustrated and stuck for years and no one has been able to help them connect those dots to realize that their perceptions are influencing their emotions and their emotions and perceptions are, are having direct impact on their motivations. And because of those three things, their behaviors are having specific outcomes. And we're going, we can help you see that. We can help you deal with that. And then we can give you some tools to know how to be able to function within that that really will give you hope that, you know what, your life can be a whole lot better at this point. But you got to be willing to step back and take a look and say, okay, what is it doing to me? And what is it I really can do about it? And we're saying, okay, if you're willing to do that and be accountable for yourself and own your own life at this level, then we can help you answer those two questions and answer them within your own story and within your own framework. That's really the essence of what we're trying to do. Okay. Yep. And yeah. Yeah. And what, so so what are some of the tools that you commonly give to people to, to help them cope with, uh, you know, emotional and situational things. I'm going to let Michael answer that Mm because he's now going to be, whining the entire time because he's carrying the load because I have to run. So Gary, thank you, thank but you. I really do have to go. So, Thanks. all right, Michael, go ahead and whine and you can give him the tools. I'll give you permission to do that. And, and you'll be That's okay. spelled W H I N E or W I N E. Well, whatever you like. Mike. Thank you, Mike, okay. for the lead in. You can go Anytime. now. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> So the, the I think to answer your question, right. I think Mike has a perspective on that. Mm-hmm. There are animals in the animal kingdom that, from the moment of their conception, are independent. A turtle goes. A female turtle lays her eggs and crawls away and leaves them, and the eggs hatch pretty much around the same time, but there is no relationship between all the young turtles that are hatched. They crawl out of the sand and 90% of them are eaten before they get to the water's edge. 10% survive. Of the 10% that make it into the water, 90% of them are eaten before they swim 100 feet. The reality is that human beings are not designed, nor do we experience life in that kind of independence. We live in community and the community can be family. It might be only a person's mother or a caregiver. It might be a 
a small unit, it may be a larger unit, maybe a tribe, it may be entire culture, but we live in community. And so the, the reality is the way in which we enable others to improve their lives, to balance themselves, to have meaning and dignity and in their journey helps everyone. <clears throat> and to the degree to which those functions of community do not happen, it endangers everyone or depletes everyone, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So the question then is, so what's the point is I'm ready to be a part of someone's community when I have the privilege of doing so. What I don't do is walk up to a homeless guy on the street and start with need, should, ought, and must. You need to clean yourself up. You ought to have a house. You need to get married. You, I don't do that because for me to announce the agenda before a person has even invited me to be a part of their lives. Now, if they're hungry or they need work or they need dignity or some other aspect of life, I can ask creative questions. I can ask sensitive questions. I can ask meaningful questions. I can ask productive questions that will help a person. And, and there are times when people say, I don't want to talk about that with you. Okay. You're not going to hurt my feelings. You have disinvited me from walking with you on the journey. That language is not going to be something that they necessarily would say, but I understand they are disinviting me to be a part of their journey right now. I'm, I'm good with that because I have no agenda of running everybody's life. I, I don't do that. Right. So in terms of the, to answer the second question that you just asked, which is, so what do we provide? I think the we have done an immense amount of thinking, writing, attempting to use language, refining, pushing against words, testing them out, seeing how people respond. So that by the time we wrote this book, why do people act that way and what can I do about it? We had refined our process to where we have some language that many, many people have found very helpful. And the response to us has been, my marriage was falling apart, but after I talked with you over the last six months, I've gained some ways of thinking I didn't even know existed. I have the words. I have some tools. I can, I can work with myself. I can work with my spouse. I can work with my children, my neighbors, in ways that I did not know how to do before. And it came out of what you have taught me, what you've modeled for me, you let me try and then gave me some coaching. So we do all of that. And, and those kinds of resources create community. But I'm not their permanent family community. I'm not their employer community. I'm not their religious community. I'm not their academic community. I'm just part of their life community for the season at which we're working on that. Mm -hmm. And ultimately our podcast and the counseling and training we do falls into the same category. Interesting. Um, like I, I know for myself, um, you know, almost like anytime I come across any problem, really, um, or, or emotional disturbance and stuff like that, I find um, that there's just usually some 
type of misinformation in my thinking. I'm, I'm believing something that's false in my head. And as soon as I just switch that over to uh, uh, something that's reality, the uh, the behavior, the emotion resolves itself. It can if it's based on something that's false. But you also may find that you were careless backing out of your driveway and backed over your next door neighbor's daughter's brand new bicycle and crushed it and then drove away not thinking anything about her feelings and your relationship with your neighbor has really tanked. And so after, after some time, it finally occurs to you, you really did do something wrong. You, mm -hmm. you really, you really violated not only your neighbor's property, but your neighbor's daughter's trust in people. So you have some repair work to do. Right. So it might be that you have believed a lie or it may be that you have created a lie to cover the truth. Mm -hmm. And that, and so the question then is, let's get down to what are you perceiving? How do you respond to that? What are you motivated to do? And how do you act it out? That's, in essence, that's therapy. I mean, that's, that's all it is. And that's perceptions, emotions, motivations, and behaviors. We've just learned how to put words to that so that we can talk number one, consistently, and number two, effectively. I'm not interested in being efficient. This is not about efficient language. It's about effective language. So when somebody says, well, I don't call anger empowerment, that's the word I use for that category. And there's a whole bunch of words that go into that system uh, from very mild, um, I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed, I'm irritated, I'm bothered. You know, that, that pisses me off. I'm, I'm, I've had it. Um, I'm ready to blow up. I'm, so we have all these words. I'm enraged. I'm furious. I'm whatever the word is. And, and we have people that have said, I don't put anger as a related word to being annoyed. Being annoyed is one thing. Being angry is totally different. I say, okay, that, I'm good with that. I, I don't tend to think that way but you do, and so I can work with that. So when, when people say, so are you right? I say, that's an interesting question. To me, it's not about right and wrong. It's about effective and ineffective. And for me, having this system with the PEMB matrix is an effective way of addressing issues and then finding resolutions to them. But if you don't, I can go a different way. I'm, I, that doesn't bother me a bit. Um, how about the ego? Do, do, do you think the ego is something that causes... The Freudian ego or using the word ego for something different? Um, I want to say this. I, I, actually, I'm really not that familiar with like what a Freudian ego is versus any other ego. Yeah, I'm just sort of like this, this belief that um, like like being selfish, really, it's always kind of protect okay. your identity as a person sure. type of ego. Um, so when you say you introduce the verb to protect. 
to protect the ego. So when I hear you say that word, I move our conversation in my mind mm -hmm. towards the emotional system of exposure, that there's something that feels unsafe or insecure as you're right. perceiving it. Your mm -hmm. ego is delicate. It's fragile. <clears throat> it is subject to injury. And you're afraid <clears throat> that somebody might damage your sense of self or your esteem or something. So now we're in the area that I would call exposure. And as we're talking, I try to be one or two steps ahead. I try not to be three because if I'm three steps ahead and you take a turn, you lost me. I'm just, I'm, I'm off in the wilderness somewhere. So by using the word protect my ego, my generalized thinking is we're talking about some level of fear or anxiety that you want to work on or at least address. So now I can go with that. Mm -hmm. We can see is ego something that needs to be protected or is ego something that needs to be promoted? That is, um, it's too small. And what we want to do is make the ego bigger, stronger, more pronounced. So there's a whole variety of ways in which we can deal with the sense of self. It would be appropriate at times, especially with young children who grow to be adults, who have a very self-oriented uh, way of walking their journey. The aspects of life tend to turn on me, on my life, my agenda, my storyline. There will be people who gravitate to that. They enjoy someone who is the prime alpha person in the room. And there are people that are put off by that. Only when that becomes a problem that someone wants to work on, I'm married to an alpha person and I don't know what to do. That's like, I don't even have an existence anymore. That person's ego is so big, it pushes me right out of the room. Or my ego is so small, everyone who takes a normal step steps on me. Well, those are two aspects of the very same issue that has to do with who am I? How do I experience what's going on in life? What's it do to me? And what do I do with it? So we, we have creative ways of addressing those questions, but we come back to those two questions. What's it doing to you? And what are you going to do with it? Right. And then where do you go kind of like from there? Well, we'll find out where do you want to go from there? Because you might say, make my spouse have a smaller identity, a smaller ego. <laughs> And okay, uh, what tools would you recommend I do that? Should I find insults that will hurt that person's feelings adequately so they have a diminished sense of self? Mm -hmm. Do you want me to criticize? Do you want me to put something on the internet that's not really true, but it makes them look smaller? I mean, exactly what do you want me to do? And the, the reality is that when a person says, do something to make my spouse have this result, my response will be, um, do you find that there are any tools that effectively result in, a f in challenging or changing another person's life? 
And if they say yes, I'll say, please tell, tell them to me because I have found third person activity doesn't really work real well. <laughs> when we're, you and me are talking and there's a third person that we're talking about, there's very little that you and I can do to affect the third person's journey. Right. So if we want to invite them into the conversation, we might be able to do something. But if we're talking about your spouse and you want me to fix your spouse, my experience is we'll spend a long time talking and have no result for it at all. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, definitely trying to change other people is futile. But if you say to me, I feel too small, I feel insignificant, like my ideas in my family, right, like say, my ideas. Like say somebody, I feel overwhelmed when I'm around somebody with a, Huge yes. ego. Then and it's it different because you're child. turning it back to yourself and then you can do something. Correct. So now we're identifying more closely, a little bit more carefully, that the issue is the way you struggle to see yourself in the context of other family members, let's say that community, in your community of family. There are factors that cause distress to you, and it could be words, it could be actions, it could be principles or concepts. Uh, You were third born in the family, but you're not the baby. You're third out of four. The oldest child in your family, now you're all in your 50s, and the oldest child is in their 60s. And they have trigger words, they're detonation words about being firstborn and you're close to the baby and I've always had to look out for you and you feel diminished as a result. So what we can do then is bring that up on the table and begin talking about the language that's used and how does that detonate a bomb in your emotional life when you're called the third born baby and on and on and on. So now we have topics we can begin to work with Mm -hmm. and we may find, I'll find by observation, you and I are on voice only. So I can't see your face. I don't know when your shoulder shrugs a little bit as a defensive move, when you cross your arms or when I bring up something, suddenly you take a sip out of your coffee. So your mouth is covered. I watch all of that stuff. And what happens then is when I verge onto a certain part of the topic or the conversation goes that way, and the person that I'm speaking with always puts their hand over their mouth or puts a coffee cup or something over their face or turns away and coughs into their hands or blows their nose so their face is covered, I know that it's something that has been said or something that they might say that's materially tied into this issue because they always cover their mouth every time we're talking about that subject that tells me something important so i'll identify that but maybe not the very first time i see it i might have to see that three four five six eight ten times and now i can begin to develop some appropriate language so i can bring that aspect up and allow that person the privilege and the responsibility of talking about that. But they may not know how to talk about that. So if I'm one or two steps ahead, I can create some language possibilities 
if they adopt that, they can then talk about it. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's definitely a way to get people, you know, watching people's reactions is certainly a good way to develop understanding over a period of time. Are there any cues like that, like, for example, um, that just tip people off right away? That tip me off to others' behaviors or tip them? Tip you off to other people's personality oh, types. Yes. Like there's when, something that a person does, you're like, I know that behavior, I know that reaction. Yes. In, in the PEMB system, I'm going to always come back to what we teach. So forgive me for doing that, but mm -hmm. it's, it's a framework in my mind that helps me a great, great deal. Perceptions, emotions, motivations, and behaviors. So now we're talking about behaviors. When a person speaks, that's a behavior. They choose certain words and they have inflection. They have hesitation. They have nastiness or sweetness in their tone of voice. So the, how they say the word is important, but they also can avoid certain words because in behavior, there are two avenues or two aspects. One is engaged behavior, something that I do overt, it's, it's visible. And then another avenue is what I disengage, actions I don't take, words I won't use. So when, I'm a, when a person communicates, we're going to say they are going to engage their communication system. Part of that is words, but if you, Stephen Hawking, uh, an incredibly brilliant man, used a voice pad so that he could look at certain words and the voice pad or the iPad would read his eyes and say his word electronically. So his voice sounded just like this. Mm -hmm. It was very mechanical and had no emotion in it. And the problem with that is I can't actually read his mind because there's a device doing a basic communication. But when a person is, is not disabled to that level and they're speaking, I watch their toes tap or their leg move and suddenly it stops. Or they're engaging in conversation and they uncross their legs or they cross their legs. I watch their shoulders. I look at how they tossle their hair when they lick their lips, when they start to say a word, but they hesitate on that word. I watch all of that because every piece is an engaged behavior of communication. There are some things that would make a person or stimulate in them great fear, great anxiety, but the individual displays no fear behavior. They are disengaged from fear behavior. So I think about that. Well, that's interesting. They're using lots of words about fear, but they're completely disengaged from their own fear. Hmm. So now I have multiple levels of communication going on, some of which is engaged communication, 
and some of which is disengaged communication. And I, as an observer, I've been doing this a long time, Gary. So I had the, the ability to read these things takes a lot of practice. Mm -hmm. But in normal conversations with your own children, your next door neighbor, your spouse, you can observe if you suspend your agenda and pay attention to their agenda, you will pick up an immense amount of communication you didn't know you were getting. When they're, so you have a young child and you say, 10 minutes before dinner, don't get a cookie. You hear some rustling in the kitchen. You walk in in your best dad voice, put your hands on your hips and say, what are you doing? and your child is caught like a deer in a headlight, you can read the situation because you know all kinds of behaviors of your child that your child doesn't know you know. And you read all that. So you're very good at it. What we want to do is improve people's ability to sense all the communication that is happening in real time. And so that's what we, we teach that as well. That's part of the PEMB system. So, uh, I mean, this, you, you've talked to me. This is the second time we've interviewed. Um, do I have any cues that I have given you that give you any ideas on um, you know, what, what type of personality traits I have or issues? <laughs> Let's go for it. <laughs> that, it's great because I can't see you. I can only hear your voice. Right. And you ask us questions so that we can have a lively conversation. Uh, if I and, and I don't have, let, I'll, I'll use my phrase, I don't have permission from you to invade your agenda. Now you have so permission I'm today. just listening. I'm, yeah, I'm just listening. <laughs> and, and in terms of being a host, um, you, you have a framework that is built around what you're trying to accomplish on the podcast, which is separate from you as an individual. It may be woven into that, but it's really separate from you as an individual. So for me to say, um, here's what I've heard on the podcast you sound a little hesitant at times to inject your own idea and promote something that you believe that's counter to what I, as the guest, am presenting. Mm -hmm. I, I don't analyze that at all. I mean, I, to me, thinking about that, you might not be a hesitant person at all. It's just that on this medium, you want to present yourself as... I'm not the expert. I'm hosting experts when actually you really are an expert and you could carry this whole conversation completely on your own, but it's just more interesting to have guests come on and, and present either a similar idea or counter idea. And that's the way you do that. So I'm good with that. So for me to, for me to uh, build a profile in my mind you, I don't think, I'm speaking only from my perspective, you haven't invited me to do that with you. And so I suspend that. I don't, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. So you won't profile me. Interesting. Uh, 
yes, I will not profile. <laughs> I was trying to think, do I say yes or do I say no? No, I won't profile you. Yes, I won't profile you. Either answer is a good answer in that context. The way you, you phrase the but, question but, but, as but, a negative but you, question. But you, but you do pick up <laughs> things, though. Like I, I noticed like, when I asked you a question, um, like when I asked you about the, the, um, the ego question, the yeah. thing that you picked up on was, was fear. And, you know, yes. so, well, so right, I, because... I would think that like, well, okay, you know, if I, if I were you and you're talking to me, I would say, okay, maybe this person has, you know, a little bit of an issue with his ego, you know, doesn't want to, want his ego or pride to be hurt or something like that. Doesn't want to embarrass himself. Correct. You know? Or that you see that as a fragile aspect of your life, and rightly so, as opposed to a very strong part of yourself. And if, if, so here, this is a good example. If you had said to me anywhere in the two and a half hours we've spoken, the three hours in, the, in our two interviews so far, if you had said to me either off the air or on the record, uh, uh, off the record or on the record, um, you know, I want to I want to ask your forgiveness in advance because I really don't want you to feel like I'm walking over you with spikes. Um, I may do some really pushy questions, some penetrating stuff, but it's just kind of how we do our show here. And so, please, you know, forgive me in advance if I step too hard on you. Mm -hmm. If you had said that, I would say your issue is. You are concerned socially that your ego, your pride, which is appropriate, you're a very gifted uh, speaker and a, and a host, um, you have ha had people in your life that have pushed back or told others to push back on you being too strong. You come across too strong. So if you apologize in advance, however, when you raise the question, um, what about a person's ego if they feel like they need to protect their ego? Well, that's not coming at me with spikes. That's I want to make sure that I'm not hurt in this process. So that switches the the conversation from one of promotion to one of defense. Mm -hmm. Neither one is automatically bad. Neither one is automatically good. The issue is what's it doing to you and what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. So you invite guests. One of the things that it says to me is the first conversation we had with you had enough value to you to follow that up. Not You could play the same podcast that we did a couple of months ago. You could play that over and over. You could say, hey, I'm putting uh, podcast 192 back up again because this is a great conversation. But instead, you said, I'm going to get those guys back on my show. Uh, and see where we go with this because that's exciting. That's interesting. There's value to, to you in that. So I'm not reading you as a person who's fragile. I'm, I'm reading you as a person who is looking for something that's engaging, that, that pushes you harder down the road you're already going as opposed to someone who is going to turn you off that road onto another road. Right. I, I, my read is you're looking for people that augment what you're already doing. And you would see us as, as helping in that process. Interesting. I, I think the one of the things I do is 
I always find that my second interview is bet with, with people. I interview people more than once. Uh, the second and third time I interview people is always better than the first time because I know them. Okay. And when I know a person, it's easier for me to come up with better questions. Which is your lead. You're, you're, you're a host that leads rather than pushes. If you had to draw a picture or act out a scene, you would have a rope that you are drawing along the floor as opposed to trying to push the rope from the back. You would not have a podcast where your guest is a rod you can push. It's a rope you can draw. And that's different. Usually, is that true? Yeah, I would definitely say that's true. Most of the time it is. Um, I mean, occasionally I've had guests with some, you know, opinions that I didn't quite agree with that would poke them a little bit, but not much. But if you had a guest that doesn't have an opinion at all, I've had say, the, I've had those too. Talk. Those are pretty tough. Thank you for coming. <laughs> thank you for coming on my show. Uh, this last five minutes has been the longest five minutes of my professional career. And uh, let's break for commercial. Uh, the the person that that when you're trying to push a rope, it's like going nowhere. You would like to draw, and you could push, but you really don't like to push. I see you as a person that likes to draw along mm-hmm. and not necessarily have to get behind and push. That that's a different style. There right. are people who push. There are people who draw, and you you seem to me to be a person who draws rather than pushes. And when somebody isn't really strong enough to be pushed or drawn, it's like, well, um, <laughs> this has been really great conversation. Yeah, I, and I, uh, we're going to go to our sponsors now. I've had I had one <laughs> one interview actually, and she she wrote a whole bunch of books on ghosts. And our first question was like, well, what do you like about ghosts? And her answer was, well, they're ghosts. <laughs> I was like. Great answer. Yeah. <laughs> but but like, that was like her answer like, to every question I asked. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, do you, do you, are you interested in vampires? No, ghosts. <laughs> it was just, I mean, she used the same answer for every question. Uh, that, that was definitely the hardest interview I ever had. And, and what's interesting about that for me, I mean, I, we're talking about a third person that I don't know. Right. That it may have been the drawing on a level of expertise that she does not have language. In her mind, she knows the topic extremely well, but she can't connect that to the language that allows her to talk about that well. Mm-hmm. And so when when a when a situation is presented, if a person's mind can form their view and opinion, but they can't move that to their language center effectively, it sounds like they don't know what they're talking about. Right. But the reality is her perceptions of being on the podcast, something else that happened in her life earlier. She likes writing a book and it takes her three years to write a book because she searches so hard for the right language. And you come on a podcast and ask her a question she has 
one quarter of a second to begin speaking with an answer and her brain just doesn't work that fast. doesn't mean she's not a good expert mm -hmm. in that area. It just means that she can't think at that speed effectively. Right. That it really probably effectively is the, is the issue. Yeah. So yeah. a good way of doing it would be say, um, the next time we meet and talk, I would like to send you the 10 questions I'm going to ask in the hour. Right. And if you have time to frame your answers in advance, don't send me the answers. I want you to be able to frame the answers prior to our conversation with me and Mike, West Coast Mike. You don't need to do that. Could you figure that one out? <laughs> yeah, I figured um, it out. <laughs> yeah. But but with that person, it would help her as an expert in the field of of uh, ghost uh pneumology the study of spirits um to have a month to think about the answer so she could move her knowledge into her language center and then when you talk to her she goes i'm ready for that question if you divert from the 10 questions <laughs> you get to question six and you say oh that reminds me of another question i wanted to ask you um ghosts <laughs> because you went off script so for her that may be a very effective way of drawing her out where for other guests that you have that's not really a problem for right. us it's not really a problem yeah yeah I, I i think other things that happens with people and i can tell by listening to them um is that you sort of get like a little bit of stage fright could be freeze up a little especially bit. when there's no stage yeah yeah well or, you know it's, it's just weird like and then once they they get comfortable you know then they're great and that's why one of the reasons too i think sometimes the second and third interview is usually better than the first because sure people become more level. comfortable with me they know what mm -hmm. to expect from me they they know where yep. that you know how that i'm going to let them usually lead the conversation rather than me you know being like uh like a shock jock or something like that correct which is your style of hosting there are others who do like that shock and they're always trying to unravel their guests and i've been on some shows like that where they everything is a challenge no matter how uh compliant i am or how aligned i am with the host the host likes to come across as I know more about every subject that you do and I'm going to prove that on my show. <laughs> Go for that. I, that's, I think that's wonderful. So what I tend to do, which is an effective move in uh, uh, most martial arts is let a person <laughs> who is attacking you use their own weight to defeat themselves instead of going against them in opposition back up suddenly grab them and pull them backwards over you and they tend to use their own weight to defeat themselves so but that's just a different strategy <laughs> a little mental judo <laughs> mental judo that's exactly right i do that too <laughs> <laughs> um what's it what's the pmb system um how could it be helpful 
like like what tools in it would you recommend or, or are there any tools or things that you would recommend to help people get through the uh, COVID crisis like that we're going through now? That's a very good question. One key, one key in addressing an issue this gigantic, and I hope you have a listening audience of about 100 million people because we're going to address all of America at the same time. It's pretty close. Pretty close. Um, <laughs> is it is okay. It is neither good nor bad. It is neither positive nor evil to have any or all of five different responses to the COVID situation. It is okay to accept it. You like the family time. You like not having to go to relatives. You didn't have to go to your mother-in-law's this Thanksgiving. And that actually is pretty nice. Um, you're sitting around your dinner table with your family members. Everybody's not racing off to soccer, uh, dance, on and on and on. Your family's not crazy because everything's been shut down. So it's okay to say, I like that. I actually prefer that. And I don't know how to capture that after COVID is over. But in the area of acceptance, um, I, I can deal with this. You, it's okay. It's neither good nor bad to be afraid. I'm afraid I might get the disease. I might sp spread the disease. Somebody I love may have this and struggle. This may bankrupt us. I may lose my job. I'm afraid of those things. So one response may be anxiety, fear, hesitation, insecurity. That's neither good nor bad. Let's just talk about that. A person may say, I am angry about this. I'm not angry about the disease. I'm angry about our government. And I'm angry about people's reaction to the government. I'm angry at the sheeple people that just put on a mask. I'm angry about my neighbor. I'm angry about everybody. Um, you know, my, my work has been uh, flaccid. I've lost customers. And so I'm furious. I'm just enraged. I'm pissed off. I'm angry all the time. So mm -hmm. that's neither good nor bad. It just is. We can talk about that. I've been exhausted by this. I'm just drained. I have no ideas left. I don't even know how to talk about it. I feel like this COVID thing has stabbed me in the back and it's ruined my family and I, and I don't know how to recover. Um, that's neither good nor bad. It is, but let's talk about the wound. Let's talk about the emptiness. Let's talk about the depletion. Or this is thrilling. We're going to be able to talk about this in 20 years as I survived really the worst human pandemic ever. It's like people who were near to Japan when the Hiroshima bomb went off say in the human history, human history, never was there an event of that magnitude in a split second. 140,000 people died, and I was near that moment. That becomes thrilling. Mm -hmm. You say, but 140 million people died, or 140,000 people died. In COVID, 300 and something thousand Americans have died. How can you be excited by that? It's the perception of, the, of our experience and what it ultimately means. And so 
being excited or thrilled is not bad, not good. It just is. Let's talk about that. So then as we experience how we expected this to happen, how it's actually happened and how we believe whether it's real or not, it has happened are all factors in our experience of the COVID months or year, year and a half, two years, whatever it happens to be. So now we can talk about acceptance, exposure, empowerment, depletion, and celebration as ways in which I am engaging the COVID experience and what I'm doing with it. So now we have some very effective platforms about which we can discuss, there is no way I am ever going to enjoy this period of time in my life. Okay, think back in the last 20, 25 years. Did anything happen in those 20 or 25 years that at the time was a disaster, but now you look back and you laugh about it, anything? And a person may say, well, actually in college, I was in a top flight program and I cheated on a test and we got caught. And I got blistered. I mean, it was just, it was awful. I got kicked out of a program. It was, it was a complete disaster. I lost $30,000 of, of uh, tuition. I thought I'm never going to recover. I was actually suicidal for a while. And I was sitting in a bar and I started talking to the waitress and we got married and we have four kids and I went into a new line of work and I have never been happier. You know, the decision to cheat on that test was the best thing I ever did in my life. And you go, whoa. That's a very interesting change from you lost $30,000 in tuition and you were embarrassed across campus. And now you're saying that's one of the best things that ever happened in your life. I'm not saying go out and cheat on your next test because the results are going to be good. What I'm saying is you had a, a dismal experience that actually with time and experience is evaluated very differently that may happen to COVID years as well. Mm -hmm. And so you actually can take up the privilege. This is really odd. You can take up the privilege of feeling what you will feel in five years about this moment. Hmm. And I've had people who have just been astounded by that idea. I'm getting divorced. I was the one that committed adultery. I tried to recover. I broke it off with the other person. My spouse wouldn't have anything to do with it. my kids hated me on and on and on. And here's the situation. It's all falling apart. Okay. In five years, you will have learned some lessons that at that time are going to make you a truly better human being. This is rough to go through now. But five years from now, you will look back at this moment at yourself and you will say, you did that wrong, but we learned a lesson 
that has changed the way we deal with everybody, including ourselves. So you will be proud of how you handled yourself right now. Mm -hmm. And you can begin to draw on that bank before you get there. I've had people say, can I actually do that? And I'm a permission giver. So I will say, yes, I, I don't believe in time travel, but let me tell you, I'm five years out. <laughs> and that person said to me five years from now, please tell me I'm going to survive this. And in fact, this is valuable to me. So I've come back here to tell you that. And I've had people say, holy cow. So I, I'm not destroying everything that ever will be. No, you're not. And now you can take some steps that will help you move forward. I've actually said those things to people. I had somebody who, who had a rear end accident. They were driving too fast in snow. You don't like snow. I love snow. <laughs> we're driving in snow. They were driving too fast and they smacked into the back end of a car in front of them. They had a perfect driving record. It was a woman in her forties. She had a perfect driving record up until that time. And uh, she smashed up the back end of the car in front of her and smashed up her car. And months later, she just could not stop the nightmares and the dreams and the fear and the, the cold sweat when she got behind her wheel. Even in the summertime, she just could not get that accident out of her mind. And so she came to talk to me about it. And we talked a couple of different times. And I said to her, let me try... Um, an idea with you. Would that be our, just a random idea? Would that be okay? And she said, sure. I said, I believe in the power of prayer. I really do. So I want to tell you what actually happened. We were, you were driving along, you were not paying attention you hit the car in front of you, but the one that you remember had turned away one street earlier. And you hit a young mother that had four children in her car. The car caught on fire and burned all five of them to death in their car. And at the funeral, you and I held hands and we prayed, God, if there is any way you can put another car between me and that car please do it so god said okay and he did and that's the car you hit and the woman looked at me with tears in her eyes she goes did that really happen are you making it up and i said we'll never know will we but what I'm telling you is God answers prayer. Hmm. And the actual event that occurred to you is not as bad as what might have happened in another situation. So you're okay. And that broke her fear. And it, it ended the nightmares. And she never had cold sweats again. So, so people could do that with the, sa the same thing with this. Yes, COVID. they can do the same thing. And it can even be something truly tragic. I mean, my mom died and she was alone 
and I wasn't able to be there with her. And so we can, we can unpack that differently because we have the privilege, we really do have the privilege of addressing our perceptions and addressing our emotions and addressing our motivations and addressing our behaviors creatively. And we can do that. And so there's no external requirement that we are obligated to see every event in the worst possible framework. We have the privilege of addressing our perceptions, emotions, motivations, and behaviors, and actually blending them differently, especially when it has become so overwhelmingly difficult to get past a particular experience. That to me is destructive. You can't get past it or you're not getting past it or you don't want to get past it. Pick any language you want in there. And the reality is that when you say, I want to get past this, but I don't know how, that says to me, you need permission. You want permission. You are ready to receive permission to work with your perceptions, your emotions, your motivations, your behaviors. And I know how to do that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Like, I, I do agree. Um, you know, I, I had a situation with my first wife. She, she took off on me. And, and I was just left with nothing. <laughs> I had nothing left. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and looking back at it now, I, I, I'd laugh, you know, because it was really the beginning of really the greatest adventure of my life. Absolutely. You but know? at the but moment. But at the time, though, I was like, oh, yeah. I just want to die. <laughs> right. And there are people who may be listening to this podcast who are at that moment in their lives from something else. It could be a relationship that's failed. It can be a, uh, a business issue. It can be something at school. It can be something in their personal life. It could be something that no one knows about. No one, absolutely no one. But they're at the breaking point. And it is, is it even worth going on from this moment? I can't, I can't deal with this event. It's destroying me. Mm -hmm. And when you ask the question, what's it doing to me? It is eating my guts out. It is, I can't sleep. I can't eat. I can't function. I don't know how to go ahead. There's no hope. There's, there's, there's no, the end is coming for me and I'm just ready to end it all. And the answer is five years from now, 10 years from now, you will use this as an incredible strength. One of the examples, I'm a firm believer in God, and I believe God designed our bodies and our world to function certain ways, mm -hmm. partly because that teaches us really valuable lessons. Um, I, when I was a younger person, I was riding a snowmobile, and I hit a support wire for a telephone pole on the snowmobile I was riding on with my left hand, caught my hand between the the throttle or the handlebar and the wire and it split both bones in my second my second index finger and my middle finger it split both bones lengthwise the break in those bones i've seen an x-ray of my hand since those two bones 
are some of the strongest bones in my body now because they were broken in the way that they were. The reality is that when something of that breaks, the repair makes it actually stronger than it ever would have been on its own. So you have a disaster in your life. Pick the disaster, name the disaster, describe the disaster. It does not matter what it is. The reality is that has the potential of increasing your strength, strength of sensitivity, strength of awareness, strength of compassion, strength of resilience in the future of your life. And so to take a permanent uh, outlet to a temporary situation to me is, is such a tragedy, not only to the individual, but to the human community. Mm -hmm. And you will have something that you will offer that I could never have learned the way you learned it. To me, that's valuable. Right. It's kind of like that Nietzsche quote, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. Correct. Well, not many people know it actually came from Nietzsche, which is probably right. a good thing. Probably. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I, I definitely have learned that through life, you know, the, the, the challenges of, you know, like, like, you know, I, you know, I'm from New Jersey and I was there for, you know, up there from nine 11 and, um, and in my neighborhood too, we had like the anthrax thing and, mm -hmm. and, yep. and, and it was so bizarre and crazy. And, and that's what this kind of reminds me of, you know, it's, it's the COVID thing, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I was like, all right, well, I've been through some some crazy stuff before. I think I could probably get through this. Absolutely, yes. You know? Now, um, let, let's take the conversation in a slightly different fashion. Mm -hmm. Let's say that there is someone who says, but I'm not as strong after COVID. I'm not, I am not as strong. It weakened me permanently. How is that a good thing? Say, okay, um... I, I don't like wearing a mask, but I wear one anyway, mm -hmm. because I have learned a compassion concerning my neighbors and people who live around me that have health compromised issues. The woman who lives across my backyard, I didn't have any idea that she was as health compromised as she is, but through COVID, I have discovered something about my neighbor that my actions have profound impact on her fear, not necessarily on her health, but on her fear. Right. So when she sees me wearing a mask, she says, I live in a good neighborhood where I'm a little bit more safe. I hate wearing my mask, but I wear it because it builds better community. I wash my hands, which is a really good thing. There are people who go to the bathroom and they don't wash their hands. They walk right back out into a business meeting, start shaking hands. I think that is really disgusting. But in today's world, we have a lot more attention to washing our hands regularly. That may carry on. So what we find is I am not stronger independently after COVID, right. I am weaker, which makes for better community. And if we come out of this 
not saying all of America, 330 million, we're never going to do anything that affects all 330 million of us at the same time. But in my neighborhood, in my town, uh, the people that shop in our stores, we have really been careful and we have learned how to be increasingly sensitive, weaker, if you will, for the good of the whole than we did before. And so the action of any particular person does affect the community. And we've learned that through this time period. So I'm hoping that in the little burg and that a street that I live on with my neighbors nearby, that we will be able to continue recognizing our own weakness mm-hmm. and our need of each other as a value in our community. Does that make me stronger? By being weaker, I become stronger. And the mm-hmm. answer to that is yes. By being weaker, it's actually making me stronger. Yeah. Absolutely. That that does make sense. It's really kind of a, kind of nice that so, so then like, you know, either way that is is a win-win for for everybody. It is. And so the Nietzsche quote, which you referred to, is whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. The Mike Merrill quote is whatever doesn't kill me makes me weaker. Mm-hmm. And that's actually a good thing. Right. And I think, you know, like, like those, those are good. I, probably the hardest part maybe with this now is, is um, the people that die, you know. And like, like, I mean, the people that die from it, obviously, once they're dead, it, it, COVID is no longer a concern for them to begin with. Um, but, but it does affect, the, obviously, the families. Absolutely. Now, let's let's back up in this conversation. Mm-hmm. the The moment we introduce into our topic the idea that a human being dies regardless of the cause means that we're addressing something that is essential about the human condition. It is essential (laughs) that we are mortal. It is, it's part of our essence. Mm -hmm. And part of the essence of humanity is that we are not our soul. I believe that's my part of my faith system. Mm -hmm. Our soul is eternal that will go on forever, but our bodies are not. It's like a tent it's not a mansion. Uh-huh. It's not a permanent dwelling. It's a tent. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was a kid in Boy Scouts, we had these pop tents. They weren't pop, P-U-P. They were P-O-P. They were like an umbrella with a floor on the bottom. And you push down in the middle, and then it popped down, and the, the uh, rods held the tent out like a, little, like a little teepee or a little umbrella, and we slept inside. When I, we did winter camping, I was maybe 13, 14 years old. I utter, I'm always cold. My fingers are cold. My toes are cold. We use those heaters. We took bricks out of the fire, blah, blah, blah. I, I did it. I'm, I like the experience. I'm glad it's in my past. And the further in my past it goes, the better it is. Mm-hmm. But I was in a tent. That is not where I'm living really forever if i see that as my permanent privilege i've misunderstood what it means to be human so 
the fact that a person dies for them, for the individual, it's a, the translation of their journey. Their soul goes out of the human body. It goes into a body fit for heaven. However, you're going to describe that in your own tradition is, is good. But the reality is it is part of our essential identity to be mortal. I don't think that was a mistake on God's part to say there's an end to your life. So if a person then says coming out of COVID years, I got time for everything I want. I don't have to say I love you. I don't have to resolve conflicts. I don't have to go back and undo something that I did before. I've always got time. COVID says, no, you really don't. You don't have a guarantee. Now, we always live with no guarantee, but there's just not much in our culture that forces that into our viewfinder right now, <laughs> but COVID has done it. Yes. So you may, you may have gotten a negative test this morning. That does not mean you won't have picked up a COVID uh, uh, virus this afternoon and you'll be dead in four days. You don't know that, right. but it's always been true. You have walked safely across the crosswalk just down the street from your house 30,000 times. That doesn't mean you're not going to get hit the next time you're in the crosswalk. It only means you got 30,000 experiences that say you're not dead yet. And the problem is if we don't grapple with, if we don't get our, our podcast is called gripping reality. If you don't grip the reality that you're mortal, that, that there is a day of your death coming, then you live life differently than if you've actually wrapped your mind around that and understood your mortality, that you, that you have a finite number of days, which may be 5,000, 30,000, but no, very, very few human beings live beyond 365,000 and 25 days, 100 years, very few. So the reality is 36,500, that is a very, very long life, 100 years. And you say 36,500, that's just not, that's not <laughs> even a million hours. Man, life is really short. Right. And, and it is, and it's long, and it's short, and it's brief, and it's meaningful, and all of that is true. But if you grab, wrap your mind, if you grip the fact that you are also mortal, it will change the way you live. Mm -hmm. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you know, one of the heavy emphasis of my podcast, and I do it for a reason, is a near-death experience, out-of-body experience, reincarnation. Mm -hmm. You know, all, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Because like you, uh, you know, I, and I've had my own experience and that's why. But, you know, I, I believe that consciousness exists outside of the body. And it's, it's just a temporary thing. You know, we're here to learn. We don't know how it's going to end. And that's that's it. <laughs> sure. And, and it also does make us value the day, value the present, and value the relationships that we have a little bit more. 
knowing that it's temporary and it could be gone tomorrow. Precisely. And here's an interesting, with the PEMB system, go back to the five basic emotions. The idea of human mortality, not just in general theory, but me, I'm mortal. I could accept that. I can have a core fear. I don't ever want to talk about it. I close my eyes when I pass a, a funeral home. I hold my breath when I pass a cemetery because I am so terrified of dying. I'm angry about that. I have got so many things I want to do and it just pisses me off that I'm not going to live to be 500 years old. I am hurt. I'm wounded. I feel empty. No matter what I do, it doesn't matter. I feel depleted. I'm excited. What's next? This is going to be such a thrill ride to get out of this body and go somewhere else. So you can take any of the five emotions mm -hmm. and begin to experience what it means to be mortal from any of those five mm. and, and even all of them at the same time. So that makes for a very full life. In my view, that makes for a very full life. If you can explore that kind of a, an essential issue, of the human condition in your own context, I am a mortal being and I accept that. I'm afraid of that. I'm angry about that. I am saddened <laughs> by that. I am thrilled by that. And right. now we can begin to do some exploring on that, on that, uh, that venue. That, that to me is where PEMB comes in um, as extremely helpful to talk about both philosophy and the practice of how do I live my life? It's both of those, uh -huh. very ethereal and very pragmatic at the same time. It's interesting. You know, I, I kind of feel that, like, feel that way too. Like, I, you know, I've been, you know, I guess three, four times I've been with people when they were passing away. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it, to me, it was, uh, not a bad experience. It, it was peaceful. It was it was just, and, and, and it felt like just like an honor to be there and and, yes. and and to have that experience. It wasn't like something horrific to run from or gave me nightmares or anything like that. To yes. me, is it's it's just as important as being born. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, the the as a pastor, I have frequently had the both the privilege and responsibility of walking alongside an individual and that person's family as the individual was dying in the process of dying it's not always clinical not you'd get a call from the hospital so and so has passed away um, they were in a nursing home nobody was with them blah 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 i've probably been with 70 about 70 people wow. who have taken their last breath mm -hmm. and their soul has left their body and their body grows cold over the next hour, two hours, four hours. Um, I've been there. I've been there holding their hands, walking with them, helping family members be close by nearby. That's part of my role as a pastor. What's fascinating is I have colleagues, very well-trained men and women who are in the ministry who are so undone by the imagination of being with someone when they die, 
that they cannot do it. They, they find reasons to go get a cup of coffee or they have to go to the bathroom or they show up to the hospital late or they show up and do last rites and then they go out the door. They, they just are overwhelmed with the idea of being there at the moment that somebody dies. Now, not every clergy and don't <clears throat> take that as an idea that what I'm saying is most clergy uh-huh. are not equipped to walk families through that. We get a lot of training it's very, but there are individuals for whom that is overwhelming. When I was 15 years old, my older brother, my mother had cancer. My older brother had run away to another country to get married. So he was gone. My dad was an alcoholic and was drinking all the time. I had three younger siblings uh, that were three and a half, five and a half and nine years younger than me. So they were not involved in my mother's disease progression or what was happening. I was in the hospital room when she died and I was fascinated by that. I wasn't religious, but our family was Jewish, but what we didn't have a, a, a framework of spirituality for us, Judaism for us was our, our ethnic background. It was about the nation of Israel. It's about wealth and privilege and just that kind of stuff. And so I had no expectation of anything spiritual happening. I'm using air quotes as I say that to you. You can't see that, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I had no understanding of anything spiritual happening. But while I was sitting there, I had the feeling that somebody got up and walked out of the room while I, I was doing homework. And and my mother was on a, a heart-lung machine. She had the, Her body had deteriorated. She was about 70 pounds. Uh, she had had many surgeries, a lot of cancer had eaten her away. And so my very vibrant 140 pound, lovely mother had become a skeletal, um, example of a human being being kept alive by machines. And, uh, and I had the feeling like somebody got up and walked out of the room, uh, behind my back, but you, you'd sense that you would have a sense of that. I did anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I went out and found a nurse and I said, um, something just happened in my mother's room. She came running in, checked the machines as a 15 year old. I knew how to check the, the machines as well. And uh, she said, no, it's all the same. And I said, but no, something happened. And she said, well, what happened? And I said, well, I felt like somebody got up and walked out of the room. And the nurse said, your mother probably just died. That was her soul leaving her body. I had no idea what she was talking about. None. So for two years, I, I asked all my friends, their parents, my teachers, Anybody who would talk to a 15-year-old kid in the 1960s about life and death and where the body, soul goes, I, nobody wanted to talk about that stuff. Everybody was into parties and happiness and, and uh, experiences of life. And so the, the, the journey I was on, no one was walking with me. So I just thought about it on my own, figured it out. And it was a result of that that I became a Christian that was based on the resurrection of Jesus. That's a whole nother story. We're not talking about that right now, but that was, but ultimately either resurrection happens or it doesn't happen. There's only two possibilities. Mm -hmm. What I experienced with my mother is there's something that happens after life in this body occurs. And I didn't have any words to describe that or even think about it. I didn't have, but I know something happened. So as I, went off to college. I was going into math and engineering and science and all that stuff. And I decided during that time frame, I really wanted to work with people. And, and over about a two year period, 
it seemed to me that pastoral ministry was really my calling. That's really where I was being driven to. I found even the pastor of the church I was attending was more uncomfortable about death than I was. I was a 19-year-old kid, 18, 19, 20-year-old kid, and we would go hospital visiting. Somebody was dying, and I'd say, let's stay. And the pastor would say, no, let's pray, and then we'll leave the family to be with their loved one. I said, no, we're not leaving right now. <laughs> and, and it was really interesting. The very first time it happened, he wanted to leave the family, and I finally picked up he's really anxious about this. This is really something that's unnerving. My pastor, he's 25 years older than I am, very well-trained, he's a very knowledgeable guy, but he's nervous being around somebody as they die. Why am I not? And I began to realize in my formative years, this was something that was natural. It was something that I could wrap my brain around, my heart around. And maybe that's one of the gifts God has given me to be ready for pastoral ministry is I am not scared by this. I'm not thrilled. I'm not saying, hey, let's go find as many dying people as we can find mm -hmm. and, uh, and jump into this experience. I'm comfortable. I'm okay with this. And, I, and that level of comfort brought comfort to the families that were losing their loved one. I, it was amazing. It was like, I'm comfortable. I'm not nervous here, folks. I'm not feeling like we all got to hold hands and sing Kumbaya while your, your loved one is dying. Let's just, let's be comfortable right now. Let's experience this together. Mm -hmm. And I had countless people say to me, I, I was terrified of my dad dying or my mom or my child, I didn't know, I couldn't think about it. But because you were here, I experienced this whole thing very, very differently. And and I would say, well, I'm glad I could be here for you. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, th that happened over and over and over. Yeah. So, to me, that's where the... I can address the PEMB of my own life and I can help people address the perceptions, emotions, motivations, behaviors of their lives in an effective way. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. I mean, that was really touching and, and, I, and I, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, I, I just know for me being like, like I was with my mom when she passed, it was, I was just really, really glad to be there. Yes, you know, absolutely. And seeing my dad and my uncle and, you know, it was just, it was good. It was just nice to be there because I don't know. I don't know why, but, you know, it is it just made me feel better. I, I think it helped well, my, I think it helped my grieving process, actually. Absolutely. And, and, and part of grieving takes place in advance of the moment of death and part of it takes place afterwards. And one of the things that I found interesting is that there are people who suspend their grieving about a loved one dying, their child, their parent, their spouse, their next door neighbor, doesn't matter who. They suspend their grieving as if, if they begin to grieve in advance, it's pushing the person into death. It's my fault they died. 
because I wasn't praying hard enough or something. I've heard people say that. And the, the reality for me is the grieving process can begin at the moment you're ready to start embracing it and move right on through grieving in advance, grieving during the moment, grieving afterwards. Uh, that's part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's a good thing. Yeah, me too. And even now, like, you know, like if I want to feel close to her, like I almost like recall that moment, like I'll relive it sure. and, and feel Absolutely. it. And, and I feel that like just her presence. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting. That is good. Yeah. Uh, um, so thank you for coming on again. And, and definitely thank you for sharing that one. That was, that was wonderful. I didn't expect that to come up. <laughs> and uh, where can my list? one of the fun things about wandering around in the woods. You find trails <laughs> you didn't even know existed. And by the time you get down that trail, you say, you know, that was not a detour. That was an adventure. Yeah. Yeah. And this, what if, this was definitely an adventure. This was awesome. Uh, where can my listeners find you? Our, our new adventure right now is running a podcast that Mike and I uh, do together. It's called Gripping Reality. Uh, welcome to my and world. We're on YouTube right now. We're looking at other platforms that that can find a wider audience, but we uh, have eight or nine or ten of them done so far. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the basic um, set of concepts and some of the language, almost like a glossary without having it be boring. If you listen to the first half hour of this, we laugh a lot. We push on each other. Uh, we know how to find the buttons that make things tick really well. Uh, and we love doing what we do. Uh, the book is on Amazon. We have uh, ebook, we have a print on demand and we have an audible uh, book. So you can get it in any way there. Uh, we do training. We have a website, we have a Facebook page. We have a, everything's tied into why do people act that way? So if you use the initials WDPATW.com, uh, you can find it there. Type in Mike and Mike. I spell Mike with a Y, and West Coast Mike spells Mike with an I. If you want to send an email, you can address it to Mike at GrippingReality.com and spell it Y or I. We share all the information that comes in, so it doesn't matter how you spell it. If you have pushback, you want to go deeper, you want to have us come speak at a conference, at anything, uh, write to Mike at grippingreality.com and you'll be able to find us. So right now, those are the primary ways that we uh, are kind of out there. And as soon as COVID is done, we have some pretty significant conferences that had scheduled us before uh, and, and we're on the docket again, but nobody knows when you can get a thousand people into a room. <laughs> so we're, we're kind of waiting on that one. Uh, we can, we've done virtual training, we've done colleges, we do um, segments, we do breakouts, we do main stage, uh, kind of anything. We, and we have a lot to share, a lot of, a lot of ideas to talk about. And then we can do consultations one-on-one -on -one, uh, to help people work through some things that are challenging. Great. So what I'll do is I'll definitely post all that information in the notes of this episode. So my listeners can find you while they're listening to go to the website, check out your podcasts. And um, and thanks for coming on. And just hang on for one moment, and it's going to play the outro. Thank you, Gary. Thank it's been you. great to be with you. You too. Thanks.
Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.